Welcome to another episode of the Unsexy Startup. This is the platform that unites founders and talks about what it truly takes to build a company and not just the highlights. With your host, Samai Parikh, and also a huge thanks to my partner, Raj Singh, for helping me put this podcast together. On this episode of the Unsexy Startup, we have founder and CEO of Parsley, Sachin Kamdar, on to talk about the highs and lows of raising capital and how to overcome the challenges with raising. Parsley partners with digital publishers to provide clear audience insight through an intuitive analytics platform. Thousands of digital publishers use Parsley to understand what content draws in website visitors. Some of Parsley's clients include Condé Nast, Huffington Post, Mashable, and the list keeps going on. Sachin, I know your schedule is super hectic, especially after raising funding not too long ago. So appreciate you taking the time to hop on the podcast. Absolutely. Happy to be here. So let's dive right into the questions. Sachin, tell us more about Parsley and how you transitioned from being in education consulting and mentoring at accelerators such as ERA into starting this company. What was the moment that made you execute on the idea? Yeah, absolutely. So really, it was born out of kind of the frustration that myself and my co-founder, Andrew, had working at very large bureaucratic organizations. So prior to becoming an education consultant, I was a teacher, and I used some technology to help personalize and build curriculums for students based on a wide set of assessments that they would take. Um, So that was what got me into the education consultant space, working for the city, several schools throughout the city. But, you know, what I kind of realized is that all this work and, you know, kind of passion I was putting into what I was building didn't translate to the Department of Education, where um, students weren't really the center of what they cared about. It was more about politics, bureaucracy, budget. And that was just really disheartening to me. Uh, Andrew had a similar experience working for a large financial institution, and we grabbed a couple of drinks one night. We were kind of commiserating over um, our our, uh, lack of kind of faith in the systems around us. And we started to think about when we were back in college as roommates, how we used to joke about uh, pitching startup ideas to one another and starting a company together. And, And really, that's when we were like, you know, a few more drinks in, we were like, why don't we actually do this? Like, what's stopping us from actually creating a company? And there really was no good reason that we shouldn't, um, we shouldn't actually go forward and start a company. And, and so the foundational kind of principle of Parsley was not really based on an individual product idea or business idea. It was built on kind of a mantra that has carried us through today, which is um, we wanted to build a company that we would love working for. And so from day one, when we decided to start a company all the way through today, when we're making high level decisions about what's going on with the company, we always think of it in the vein of, well, is this something that I would love if I was working for Parsley? That obviously is not going to help you build a business, though. That's going to help you create the right culture. And so the the business idea and the concept uh, really was born out of our shared passion for content and news and how it was changing online. And so we started to see how digital was kind of changing everything about what was happening with content, how business models were being developed, products were changing, how it could become more interactive. And one of the key other areas is actually the data exhaust that you could actually start to use and and build on top of online that you didn't have the ability to do via print. Uh, And so we built a series of products in and around that concept of there being a data exhaust that you could use to help you know, our first product was to help build a consumer news app that was personalized for a user. Our second idea was around building a personalization service that we would then sell to publishers and digital media companies to get that type of uh, personalization on their own site. And that allowed us to really understand this industry and go, uh, gain some domain expertise with this industry where we saw that actually 
the key kind of piece of technology that needed to change was analytics. They basically were using analytics as they would use um, something that they would only touch every couple of days. And there would be a handful of people that would start to understand what's happening on their site. And then everybody else would interface through the data and insights through Excel reports or PDFs. And we thought that that was really inefficient. And in fact, like if you flip that model around where you have the majority of the company looking at data, understanding what content works, understanding how people were engaging with it, where they were coming from, then that could change the whole kind of uh, way that you worked, where it was very customer-centric, reader-first, let's build what they want, and let's use data as a mechanism to understand that. So that's what we launched in 2012. That was three years after we started the company and, and developed all these products in between. And that um, product really took off for us and uh, takes us to where we are today, launching in and around um, that kind of key analytics product that we built uh, and launched in 2012. So as you know, data analytics is is growing rapidly. Um, and you're the first, Parsley's the first I've heard of actually making it super laser focused on driving in visitors with the right type of content to make it that personalized and that granular. Where do you see data analytics, especially for media or marketing, going three years, five years down the road? Yeah, this is going to be a little cliche because I feel like this is what a lot of people say, but it's true. So uh, it is what it is, right? I think the way that it's changing is it's really moving from a model where analytics is descriptive to a model where it's going to be prescriptive. And that's going to incorporate all the kind of buzzwords that we know and hear about in this industry related to machine learning, related for, to artificial intelligence, and being able to get ahead and in front of what the data is actually telling you to start delivering the insights that you know is going to affect your future. Um, and so that's where I think the, the industry is going to go as a whole. For us at Parsley, it's really exciting to be a part of that kind of overarching trend because we really do feel like it can be a fundamental shift in the way that analytics works inside an organization. And tell us about the sexiest moment you had so far in terms of raising capital and why was this the sexiest moment for you? Like, how did that feel emotionally? Yeah, uh, raising capital overall is not a fun thing to do, uh, but it can be more fun if you have a lot of kind of momentum at your side. And so we just raised this last round of financing. You know, we closed it this past summer. And that was a really exciting, I guess, sexy moment for us because we had a lot of interest with people that wanted to put money into Parsley. But it was actually really curious too because we were only looking to raise, you know, it was going to be our Series B, but we weren't looking to raise a traditional Series B round. We were looking to raise a few more million and what had happened since we raised our Series A back in 2013 um, to now is that the whole uh, venture capital market shifted where they were flush with cash. They needed to invest a lot of money. And so the, the check sizes that they were writing were going up. So whereas the Series B um, back in 2013 might have been 5 to $10 million, in 2016, 17, that skyrocketed to like 10 to $20 million. And so everybody that we went to to tell them about Parsley was very excited about how far we've gotten, um, all the metrics in and around what we do, our, our kind of vision for the future. But then when it came to, hey, well, how much are you guys looking for? And we were like, you know, $5 million is, I think, what we need to take us to the next milestone. That was a huge turnoff. And, and they basically wanted us to take $20 million. And in some cases, we had people throwing $30 and $40 million at the company. And that didn't seem like the right thing to do for us as a company, um, taking on so much dilution, potentially losing control of the company. And ultimately, I think 
having too much cash can be bad for the way that you make decisions, the way you think about the future overall. And so um, that was really sexy in the sense that we had people that were confident enough to throw $40 million at Parsley, but also um, challenging in the sense that we had to decide how to, how to turn that away and make the right decision, I think, um, for the company overall. And speaking of, I mean, Parsley has been around for, what, eight years, right? Yep. So at eight years, so the sexiest moment was raising the funding. And it, as you said, it's, it's pretty cool that, you know, VCs and other super angels are willing to throw in more cash. But that speaking of that, I mean, before even the seed or series A, like the eight years, right? A lot of this time was took really struggling to get this idea going. And now that you're able to raise funds, many people think this is an easy task. But in reality, share someone's sexy moments with raising this capital while you had to do it. Um, you know, share some moments where you felt lost, like this was never going to happen. Yeah, uh, I can definitely share those. So I can share the first time that we set out to raise money. So we developed the consumer facing news app. Um, this was in like the summer of 2009, height of the recession. We launched, it got some good traction, but when we went to talk to investors about it, they're not, they weren't going to throw any, any money at anything that wasn't like close to a sure bet of getting to the next milestone. And with a consumer app that just, you know, that just wasn't going to be the case with what we were developing. Um, we didn't have an imminent business model. And we knew that if we stuck with that same thing, then we would just run out of money. So we pivoted over to taking that underlying technology that would personalize your feed to selling that as a service to digital media companies. And we got some quick wins with some big companies that we were working with there and were able to start to raise our first round of financing. So we found this uh, VC that uh, was excited about what we were doing. They wrote us a term sheet, said they were going to lead our round. We were raising $500,000. I think this was like late um, summer now, 2010. So almost a year after we first launched that news app. And so the, they, they were going to take like 200, I think, or 250 of the $500,000 round. They're like, okay, go find the rest. We'll make some introductions to other investors we like and go find the rest so we can close this thing up. And we're like, awesome. Okay, let's go. And so we started meeting with angels. We started meeting with other investors. And we basically, about uh, a month later, we were ready to go. We filled out the remaining uh, uh, part of the round and we wanted to close this thing. And so we uh, go to our lead investor and we tell them, hey, we're ready to do this. And he's like, okay, that's great. Uh, I think we need to meet though tomorrow, right? And I'm like, okay, fine, let's meet. So I walk into the office and he tells me, you know, we really like what you guys are doing, but we don't really like the makeup of this round. And I scratched my head and I was like, what do you mean? He's like, I think there are too many angel investors. And really what we were looking for is another kind of VC like us that would come into this round. And they never made this clear in the past. And so it was a really big head scratcher. And so ultimately they said, we're going to pull out of this round. We're done. And we're like, wait, just give us a chance to find a, another VC. Like we didn't know that that was your preference. And, and they were basically like, no, we're moving on to other things. Sorry, guys, this isn't going to work out. And so this is now a year and some months after we first started. Both Andrew and I were working full-time jobs, consulting, paying another third employee full-time, and then doing this full-time, trying to raise this round, continue the momentum with the business and the company. And so that was just like the straw for us. We were just like, well, I guess this is a done. Like there's nowhere else. Like we're so burnt out. There's nowhere else for us to go. We can't do anything else. Like we're done. And that was the conversation we had right after 
this investor told us that they were pulling out. And so, you know, we had a couple of more investor meetings uh, that we had scheduled uh, just from like trying to fill up the round of financing. And, you know, one was this uh, angel investor who just sold a company to Google, was like, showed us interest, I think, on AngelList. Um, This was like when AngelList was completely new, Um, showed us some interest there. And we took the meeting and, you know, Andrew and I were just basically like, yeah, let's, let's take it. You know, what harm could come of it? Maybe like he'll have some insight. And so we took the meeting. The guy was really just incredibly impressed with what we did and like was totally a believer in the future. And we told him the scenario with this VC and he was like, oh man, fuck that guy. I'll write you guys a check on the spot. <laughs> and he literally uh, decided to, to write a check there for, he didn't write a check. He wired us like 125000 um, we started meeting with other VCs, and all of a sudden, three weeks later, we were oversubscribed, and we ended up close, closing an eight hundred thousand dollar round of financing instead of the initial five hundred thousand dollar round of financing. Um, so that was just a huge low and then a huge high all at once, and you know it made me really realize the value of just being persistent and staying in the game. If we wouldn't have taken that meeting, if we would have turned that away, this what we have accomplished to date would just not exist. Like none of this would exist. And so there's always another opportunity if you can last long enough, if you're willing to like stay in the game and, and do what it takes to get to the next stage. So is there like massive anxiety going on during this point before that angel investor came in who sold his company to Google? I, I know you were talking about what was going on through your head, but were there some days you were just like, you were kind of like, oh my God, like, I don't know what the next step is. Absolutely. I mean, in the first couple of years, and even past when we closed this round of financing, like we had to we had to change directions again. Um, so in the first like kind of three years, uh, I really I really kind of turned it as like the awkward teenage phase where you're like going through your body changing. You don't really know like what is real, what is not, how to like act, how to think. What decisions are right? Am I like doing this based on my gut? Is there data to back this up? And it's just a whole lot of uncertainty that swirls in your head with the identity of your company. Like, who are we? What are we trying to do? And then that falls back onto the identity of yourself. Like, oh, is this the right life decision that I made? Like, this all could fall apart in a day. This could be successful in a day. Like, you just kind of question everything. And the hard part about financing or trying to raise money on top of that is. With any type of round that you do, you're inevitably going to get a lot of people saying no and poking holes into your business. And so that just throws further doubt on the fire of what's already swirling in your head around whether this is a legit thing or not. And so, um, again, it's about persistence and like trying to figure out not whether what these people are saying is right or wrong individually, but really trying to figure out where that like linear regression is with all this feedback. And is there a pattern that makes sense to you? And a lot of people are going to think it uh, like read it or hear about your company or read a deck or see a presentation about your company for 10 minutes and then make a judgment about what you're doing right or wrong. And you've been thinking about this for like, you know, months or years in our case, like a couple of years now where, you know, you have a lot of instinctual areas about what you think is right and wrong. So it's just about figuring out the middle ground between the two to get rid of some of that uncertainty and, and doubt. Because for first time entrepreneurs, it's definitely going to be swirling in your head. And speaking of first time entrepreneurs, what do you feel people think raising capital is like versus actually the experience of going through it? I mean, what's that difference? 
I think they feel like it's, you know, okay, we're going to get a list of investors. We're going to pitch them our idea. One or two of them are going to be really excited and then we're off to the races. But that is not the way that it works. It is an iterative process where you start to kind of build your vision as you're going along. And it is just a ton of rejection. This would be like you trying to go out and date somebody, but you're wearing this like really, really ugly mask, but they don't know that you're wearing a mask. It's just you're just going out there looking like a very ugly person because that's what a new startup is. And there are no fundamentals. There are no uh, great ways for you to show how you're going to make money. It's really about you proving to the investor that you know you can take on whatever this thing becomes and that the investor has confidence in you that you can figure it out mixed with whatever traction that you have, but it's not going to be a lot. And, and likely it's not going to be enough in and of itself to do it. So it's just really tough. And it's it's not something that's easy. And I think like the other important point that a lot of people I, I, I hear from nowadays that are new, see kind of financing as an end, but it's a means to an end. Like you shouldn't celebrate your financing because all you did is just put way more pressure on yourself to deliver. You're now taking in other people's money that expect it back with some type of return. And that is just more pressure. So after the financing happens, it doesn't get easier. It only gets harder because you're doing more. You now have more pressure, more expectation of outcomes. And how can new coming founders have a fresh look on fundraising now that you're saying, you know, that getting funding is not all that. I mean, it's not a celebration. I mean, again, people are diluting their their equity stake in the company. You know, it, it may seem sexy to raise, but it's super unsexy. And you busted your ass to build this company for, in some cases, 10, 15 plus years. And you're only walking away with maybe several million dollars compared to everybody, you know, benefiting hundreds of millions of dollars. What's that? fresh look on fundraising new founders can have? I think you have to, you have to just be honest uh, with what you want to do. And, you know, I don't think, I don't think it, especially now, I don't think you necessarily need to take financing. Like that is no longer a requirement. It is super easy to get to a point with a, a uh, not a lot of capital where you are pulling in revenue and making money yourself, right? And so I think if you are going to take financing, be honest with yourself about what that means and what that means in terms of your outcomes and what that means in terms of your control. Because what you're doing is you're hopping on a train that requires a lot of fast growth to fuel where the next destination is going to be. And so that is a train you're hopping on. It's going fast. And either that train is going to crash before it gets to the next stop, or it's going to reach the next stop. And then you'll, you'll be on to like kind of next milestone from there. And so just be honest with yourself about what you actually want. Do you want a better lifestyle? Do you want to build a big company? Do you want something that um, is going to have large impact? Or do you want something that really allows you the freedom to do what you want? And either of those options are totally okay. Just be honest with yourself with ultimately what your end goal is, and then architect a strategy around that. And what do you feel are some what some quick tips new founders can take in just listening to this episode on raising capital? And one or two quick tips on the challenges in the beginning stages. How could they overcome those? Uh, yeah, so a couple of quick tips is just get used to say, uh, hearing investors say no. A lot of what happens when you're raising around is um, not necessarily trying to convince investors that what your kind of grand vision is uh, is something that they need to hop aboard on, but it's really about finding the right match. 
So you want to try to find investors that already have some type of thesis around what you're doing that matches well with how you see you and your company evolving over time. Um, and so what that means is that you have to do a lot of conversations, you have to do a lot of meetings, and you have to figure out what they think overall. And so when the magic happens is when you have something that you think is really going to make sense for the where you are right now and where you're going in the future. And that fits the vision of what the investor thinks. And that's where then you can like move it down the path of, okay, do we have all the right kind of fundamentals to make this thing work? Um, so that's tip one is just be ready for a lot of no's because it's not about them saying no necessarily to you or your product, but it's about them saying, no, this is going to fit the, the view of how we see the world. Uh, two is come out with like, come into every investor meeting with a secondary outcome. Um, so for us at Parsley, when we were first raising our round of financing, and this is particularly helpful for a B2B company, but we wanted to work with media companies. And, you know, Andrew and I didn't come from a media background. We don't, we didn't have a network there. We didn't have any connections there. And so with every single investor that we would meet with, we obviously knew that they had the type of connections that we would want to actually sell our product. And so we would just ask them, hey, you know, one great way that you could do diligence on Parsley is to like get feedback from so-and-so who I know that you know via LinkedIn. If you can do an introduction there, that's going to allow us to like show him what's going on or her what's going on, and they'll give you feedback on the company overall. But what it actually was, was us just trying to build a network and do more deals. And so that was a really nice secondary outcome that we had through just trying to raise uh, around the financing is just, we got a ton of introductions to media companies that eventually were customers at the end of the day. And then I, I would say the last thing that you have to do is don't let this become a stale process. Set to whatever degree you can some type of time bounding to when you're going to start fundraising and when you're going to end fundraising and make it as kind of aggressive as possible. You want to meet with as many people within that time um, range and you want to get feedback as quick as possible and iterate on that as quick as possible because the industry does talk. And if you start to go kind of piecemeal to every one investor, like call it a couple of investors every uh, two week or two weeks, then word's going to get out that like, hey, these guys have been like doing the circuit. They're not really, um, they don't really have any momentum behind them. But if you're doing it really quickly, then like you have the ability to kind of control the conversation, deliver the momentum and not have kind of collusion is a bad word, but because uh, it's not necessarily bad for investors to do this, but that's what they do. They'll collude and they'll figure out what's going on. So you can help control that uh, to a certain degree. And it's, it's interesting you said be aggressive. Um, what, real quick, what do you mean by aggressive? Like what if I have a pitch deck ready, I have my idea, I've got some beta users. How aggressive, how am I getting in front of these people to begin with? And I don't even, I may know only one VC or two and to expand from there. Yeah, so some of it's just going to be cold um, outreach to VCs that you know, uh, or not that you know, cold outreach, outreach to VCs that you don't know, but you think would be interesting in it. And you have to make that tailored and personalized. Don't just send them like your startup deck. Find something about what they wrote, something they tweeted about, and try to figure out a way to make um, your email personalized to what they care about. That's one approach. Two is like if you have some type of professional network, um, you might be able to find um, some type of warm connections to other people. Uh, three is use the databases like AngelList, and there's several other ones out there like Venture Maps to figure out you know who is in this space. Try to figure out if they're going to any events and attend those. But once you have your like list of investors that you think 
fit kind of what you need, then that's when you just go hard. And, and aggr- by aggressive, I don't mean you, you go in there aggressive saying, give me my money now. I mean, aggressive and how um, how quickly you're reaching out to people and, and how many people that you're reaching out to. It should be everybody that you find in your target list and treat it like for anybody that's in sales, treat it like a sales pipeline. Who's just like uh, inbounded to us, who's cold outreach, who's like de- demonstrating value, who's like excited, move them along the pipeline like you would any kind of sales opportunity. And that's going to help you kind of um, uh, manage the process a little bit. I agree on that note, man. And I have a founder's question, such and I ask all the founders that have been on the show. What is some advice you would give your younger self six to seven years ago from what you know now and why? So six to seven years ago from what I know now would, would basically be don't give up and keep keep on going. Because <laughs> I think like that would have been for me, uh, for me emotionally and personally, that would have been a huge weight off my back. Is just to say, like, listen, if you're there long enough, the opportunities will present itself and you'll be able to capture those opportunities. So just stick through it, figure out a way to persist, figure out a way to be there tomorrow, and eventually, eventually opportunities are going to be in front of you. Um, so, so that's the feedback I'd give to just maybe ease, ease the kind of emotional stress of running the company six or seven years ago. Sachin, thanks so much for being on the show, my man. Absolutely. It's great talking to you. I would like to take a moment to thank our sponsors, Go Moment, Quake Capital, and Startup Boost for helping me put this podcast together. If this podcast helped you or you learned something new, please leave an iTunes rating by going to the link I provided below. And if anyone's interested in using Parsley, I'll put the link in the description as well. Until next episode, this is Samai Parikh signing out. Mm-hmm.